We're going to close the morning with the word of God. If that's okay with you. One of the questions that I was asked, that I am often asked, is how do you know the will of God? It's a question that we often asked. We're often asked. See, when we are preachers, we preachers can do theology about the will of God. We could write, we could write a sermon about the will of God, and we could, we could preach about it from the pulpit, and it could sound good. The question is, when the rubber hits the road, when we have to make decisions, when we, when we have to move families, when we have to move congregations, when we have to plant a new church, when we have to, to change the direction, and we say, this is the will of God. How do you discern the will of God for your life? It's a good question. I, I, was, I was confronted with that question we were celebrating uh, New Year's in Guatemala last year with my, my wife and two daughters. And um, it's, it's rare that we get together, the four of us anymore, because we live in three different houses. My wife and I live in the same one. <laughs> and then our two daughters live in a separate house each. And so three different houses, two different states, two different time zones, and four different schedules, it's hard to get together. So every time that we get together, we treasure it. We were together in, in Guatemala, of all places. I'm kind of biased. I, I think that uh, uh, God lives in Guatemala. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> we got together, and we were celebrating uh, New Year's. And you know, when, when your kids are adults, young adults, you know, they don't beat around the bush. They ask questions. And you cannot just sugarcoat them. You remember when they were kids? Oh, I remember when I was a kid. When I asked my dad, Dad, you know, my favorite, my favorite two-word question has been why. It's always been why. And you say two words, yeah, because in Spanish it's por qué. <laughs> por qué. That was my favorite question. Why? I was little. I think that's the first thing I learned to say. I don't think I learned to say mom, dad first. I think the first things I learned to say was why. I have this crazy notion I, I am I'm biased. I believe that those who know how will be working for those who know why. This is just a theory of mine. So since I was little and I had this theory, I was always looking for the why. Intuitively, I probably thought those who know how are, on, are always going to be working for those who know why. So I went to dad and I asked dad, but why? Everything my dad said, and I said, why? My dad answered, my dad had the answer, always. His answer was, because I said so. <laughs> that, plus a long belt, took care of it. Between his I said so and the belt, we're cool. But I grew up. I grew up and I became a teenager and, and my whys became, were, were always connected. The why was always followed by a stomping of my feet. You know what teenagers do. Why? Well, fortunately, the Lord took care of that. When I received Christ, I was saved. I was not sanctified. So I kept on asking why. And my dad, he just raised the bar of the answer. I was now a believer. I was a youth leader in my church. I was a college student, and I would ask, but dad, why? So my dad, who knew about this kid, he would say, because God said so. <laughs> he just raised the bar. Well, since we are bound to, to pay, it's not karma. I don't believe in karma. Let me just tell you, I do not believe in karma. That's not biblical. I don't even talk about karma. 
But I do believe what the scripture says that the same, the same measure that you use to measure others is going to be used unto you. And I, 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 I always told my dad why. So I, now I have, I, I, have it, I have it times two. I have two daughters. And they, for some reason, they got my genes, the Y genes. So we're sitting at the table, and, and they ask this question. Now it's two of them. Both of them are career women. Both of them are highly educated, very smart. They kind of got together mom and dad's genes multiplied by two exponentially to the nth, and now that, that's them. Imagine that. That's scary. So that now, plus, we're sitting there, and for them, I'm old. I don't think I am, but for them, I'm old. I'll never think I am, but I'm old. No, I'm not. Correct. So we're sitting there, and they ask the question, so dad, all these years, dad, you remember when we moved, when we moved to Ecuador? One was five, the other was one. We went, and you didn't ask us that. Of course not. Then, Dad, we, we, were, we went from Ecuador to Kansas City, and, and, and we were three and seven. You didn't ask us that. You just took us there. Yeah. And then, and then we, we were seven and 11, and you took us to Colorado Springs, and you didn't ask us that. Then you asked us when we were in Maryland to go to Europe because by then we were teenagers and we, know, we knew how to stump our feet. But every time you talked to us, you said, the Lord told us. So that, seriously, how do you know that it was God the one who told you? How do you know the will of God. That seriously. How do you discern between the will of God and a bad pizza? <laughs> it's a good question. It's a legitimate question. See, what happens is that a lot of us preachers, we blame God. If we cannot figure it out, we blame God. I got to confess to you that I memorized the manual when I was 19. The right thing for the wrong reasons. See, what happened was that I, I realized that I had lost so many years of my life being at church. I, I went to assemblies and I did all this Nazarene stuff without being a believer. So now that I was a believer, I wanted, just, I, I wanted to redeem the time. I had a lot of ideas. I had a lot of energy. I wanted to do a lot of stuff. And I, I just wanted to do it. And I would come and I would tell people, we're going to do this. And what they told me was, no, because the manual says. And I wanted to go and this. And, but according to the manual, after five times, I said, I got to meet this manual guy. I got to meet the guy because, uh, because he's pretty constricting. So I went, I went and I memorized the thing. And I realized that it was not the manual, the restricting thing. It was our interpretation of the manual. Sometimes we use our paradigms our frameworks, and even our narrow understandings as a justification for what we do not have control over. One of them is the will of God. I gave you the illustration of the manual because I can prove to you case after case after case of things that I have heard people saying, but according to the manual, and I go, that's not what the manual says. And they say, but that's what I was told. Well, read the book. And we have used the term, the will of God, often. You know what I have found out is that there are a lot of saints, saved, sanctified people, who have a hard time discerning the will of God. And that's not a sinful thing. 
And we need to distinguish it. And the Apostle Paul was, was addressing that question. He realized that saved people, sanctified people, at times have a hard time discerning the will of God. So he wrote a letter to saved, sanctified people. Could you stand up as we read Romans 12, verses 1 and 2? But we're going to read them as a matter of prayer. As a matter of prayer. The letter to the church in Rome, almost to the end of it, once he had already settled the issue of living in the flesh and living in the spirit, now he summarizes it for us. Here's a prayer. I'm going to read it to you as a prayer. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let it be so. Amen. You may be seated. It's interesting because Paul is writing to the church in, in Rome and, and he is telling them, you are, you are saved people. You are people of the Lord. You are saved people. And then in Romans 12:1, he presents a staple verse for, it, this is really a holiness sermon, Romans 12:1. If you are a preacher and you have not preached a holiness sermon on Romans 12:1, you've missed the boat. And if you are a church member and your pastor has not preached to you from Romans 12:1 on holiness, you got to call his attention or her attention because this is staple stuff. If you're saved, he said, let me tell you what you're living, what is that your true worship? And, and forgive me for those who have beautifully led worship. Uh, that has been good praise. It's really praise what they have been leading. Because our true, proper worship is ourselves. Presenting ourselves as a living, holy sacrifice. Ourselves at the altar, at the sanctifying altar that purifies us. Our, our surrender is our true worship. That's what the scripture says. This is your true and proper worship. We put music and all of that to it just to make it praise. But holy people are God's true worship. I'm not making that up. It says that we offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, is our true and proper worship. Now, I'm not going to preach about it. I'm, this is just a refresher because I know that I know that I know that a, a percentage of you have preached about it. Just in case you haven't, here it is. Just a refresher. But now Paul says, but how do you, how do you, Discern the will of God. Now, I love the part of the discerning of the will of God. I'm going to start backwards because I'm strange. So I'm going to start backwards. This sermon is going to start at the end of what I read, and then I'm going to go to the beginning. This is, I'm going to start by the first sermon. This is a three-sermon sermon. 
Sermon number one. Do you want to discern the will of God? Very simple. You must search the mind of God. It's very simple. That's the word of the day. Facile. Simple. You want to discern the will of God? It's very simple. You must search the will of God. The, the, the mind of God. Because if you have the mind of God. If you have the mind of God. Then the will of God is going to appear naturally. I was tricked. I tricked myself the first time that I read the last part of verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve the will of God. I thought, this is really cool. This is like the market in a new marketing from Volkswagen. Now that they had their problem with their cheating on their engines, and I own one of those, and hasn't even been recalled yet. After Volkswagen found out that, that they were caught, they came up with a new promotion in, in the United States, and the promotion is drive it, test it, and if you like it, buy it. Have you seen that commercial? All you have to do is just come, drive it, take it for a test drive, and if you like it, it's going to be yours. It's appealing to mankind. It's appealing to, to postmodern thinking. It's appealing to your thinking. Your thinking is, okay, I got I to gotta check this out first. This verse is very appealing. It says, then you will be able to test and approve the will of God. Are you telling me that God is saying, listen, I'm going to let you drive my will for a while. That's what it says. Test and approve. I'm going to let you drive my will for a while. I want to let you kind of uh, entertain it. And if you like it, you approve it. That's what it sounds like. It says, you will be able to test and approve. And I'm telling, I'm asking God, okay, so what's the deal? If I am able to test and approve, I'm a rational man. And if I say, you know what? I drove your will and I it kind of, I kind of not, don't like it. That's what it's saying here. You will be able to test and approve. Ah, it's kind of tricky. Because if you have the mind of God... If you have the mind of God, and if you experience the will of God, do you think that God is going to contradict himself? God is not going to contradict himself. So if you have the mind of God, once you are revealed the will of God, then it's good. In fact, it says he's good, pleasing, and perfect. Let me just tell you. The will of God is always good, is always pleasing, and is always perfect. Let me just repeat this to you. The will of God is always good, is always pleasing, and always perfect. If it is always good, always pleasing, and always perfect, why do I have to test it, and why do I have to approve it? Because I'm a human and to the extent that my mind is off sync with the mind of God, the gray area of me is going to be questioning the will of God. But if I have the mind of God, if there is a complete synchrony between the mind of God and I have surrendered my mind to the mind of God, when His will is revealed to me, Immediately, I embrace it as good, pleasing, and perfect. So message number one. Do you want to find the will of God for your life, for your family, for your church, for your district, for your ministry? First, you must search the will of God. That would have been a good devotional, but this is just point number one. This is just sermon number one. That preaches by itself. You know, by, by, now, by now you could be saying, well, let's search the mind of God. Well, here's the second sermon though. The problem of saints, I'm not talking about sinners. The problem of saints is that 
What keeps us from having the mind of God is all the clutter. Our minds are cluttered. We are saved. Amen? Are, are we, are, can we testify of being saved? You don't sound too excited about it, but... <laughs> the word testify means that you are standing as a witness. Let me just ask you again. Do you testify of being saved? Amen. I do. I'm standing here as a witness. You test, do you testify of being a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God? Oh, come on. Don't be shy, saints. Do you testify of being sanctified by the Spirit of God? Yeah. Uh, I do. I do. Daily, I, 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 I got to come. I, I was once. I had my crisis. And now I'm in my process. But saved, sanctified people have a hard time discerning the will of God. Have a hard time getting to the mind of God because our minds are cluttered. Let me, let me give you the three sources of clutter that I have found. The first source of clutter for many sanctified believers is the context. Is the context. This is how we get the cluttering. We get up in the morning, depending on which generation we are, we get up in the morning, some of us put our slippers on, and start walking past the coffee pot, get to the door, open the door, get outside, and grab this beautiful roll of paper. You know what I mean? Some of us love the smell of printed paper. We call it vintage and we go, then we walk inside, and we get the newspaper, and that's how the cluttering process starts. Others have chosen to, to replace the, 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 the 50-meter walk or the 20-meter walk to, to pick up the newspaper. Some of us just, it's shorter. We just go and, and, and have a small arm struggle against our spouse to get the remote. And once we have won the remote, we just turn the TV on, and then we start getting ourselves cluttered. In fact, we even choose the sources of our cluttering. In North America, they are, they are, they are quite divided. They're quite, quite split. And depending on which three letters you pick, that's how you clutter your brain. So I, my wife and I, we decided to do an exercise about a couple of years ago or a year or so ago. We're going to watch for a month. We're just going to watch the news from this network. And after a month, we started thinking like the people on this network. And it was scary. Because we started talking about like them and, and criticizing the people. And oh, we were, almost, we were about to change political affiliation. But because it was an experiment, so we changed and we decided to, to watch for a month the, this news channel. And after a month, we were on this end. And just prove the fact that we choose what clutters our mind. You know that the millennials, this is what we say about the millennials. Here's the, let me just tell you about the millennials. Are, are, are any millennials here? I'm going to talk about you for a moment. Here's the problem with the millennials. The millennials... Just a second. The millennials, <laughs> they want the church to change its belief according to their behavior. Mm -hmm. So they behave this way, and then they, these behaviors, they want the church to change their belief system according to their behaviors. So they behave first, and then based on their behaviors, they want us to believe. Isn't that awful? Mm, let me talk to you about your, your generation. This is what the millennials are saying about your generation. You have brought your politics to the church. Whatever political perspective you have, you bring it to the church, and you have made the church to behave according to your politics. Uh, that hurts, doesn't it? 
But is it the same thing? It, it just doesn't look behaviorally bad. It just looks politically a certain way. We have framed Jesus according to our political perspective or persuasion. And the Apostle Paul says, Do not be shaped. Do not be conformed. Do not be cluttered. Oh, here's another source of cluttering. The second source of cluttering is called religion. Wait a second, you are really tampering with everything that is so sacred. Religion is a second source of cluttering. See, we are trained to think religion a certain way. And we are even trained to believe that it's even in the Bible. Uh, let me give you an example. Rachel and I, we grew up in Guatemala. In Guatemala, the heathens were the Catholics. And the good, the good guys were the Protestants. All our apologetics, all our evangelism and all of this, isn't that true? We were trained to evangelize Catholics. That was it. So we learned everything that was wrong about the Catholics. We made a list. And so when they came to us, we had, you know, like the, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, we had a list of things and boom. So we come. <clears throat> One of the things that we learned that Everything that Catholics did was sinful, therefore we wouldn't do it because we are Protestant. One of those things that we learned in Latin America was that good evangelicals do not have nativity sets. Who does the na nacimientos? The Catholics. They have all these, all these icons. So uh, we, we were raised... You know, I was a good Nazarene and a good Christian. I was raised that the nativity set is Catholic, therefore is, is evil, therefore is a sin. Good. Check. So we come to Cincinnati, Ohio, and we go to a Nazarene church. <laughs> and we're in the Nazarene church, and here comes December. And the ladies at church collect nativity, nativity sets. I wrote a letter to my, my church back home. Please pray for the church in America. <laughs> they have gone rogue. They do nativity sets. Sounds like an exaggeration, doesn't it? But there are a lot of things, a lot of things that we believe to be true and we believe to be sacred and that we believe to be unmovable because of religion, that the truth of the matter is that it is tradition, but it's not biblical. And we're willing to die for those traditions, even if they are anathema. King Hezekiah, after decades, the people of God, God had given them a serpent. You remember the story of the brass serpent? When they were in the desert, he said, every time you look at the brass serpent, you're going to look at it, and that's a figure of the presence of God. And every time you look at it, the presence of God, you're going to get healed. And that worked. That was an outstanding method for the desert. Now they brought it, and they brought it to the temple, and now it's in the temple. And those guys are worshiping the thing while the presence of God was here, and they were worshiping the thing. And Hezekiah had the guts to destroy the thing. And he said, hey, guys, we got it wrong. We're worshiping the methods. The method was good for the desert, but now we have the presence of God, the Shekinah, we have it here. Is your choice Shekinah or copper stuff? Religion. The third source of cluttering is our own background. I cannot help but to think like a Latino. You know, your district superintendent, he is corny. He has all these jokes that, man, alive. Well, he's Irish. 
Uh, forgive me for this. If you, if you come from Britain, I just have to tell you this. I just learned about it. I'm, 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 I'm a, my boss was uh, Dr. Clive Culver, former president of, of the Evangelical Alliance of the UK and Ireland. And I was the vice president of World Relief. He was my boss, and he said, Gustavo, let me just tell you, if you want to go to Britain, I'm going to give you a quick lesson on understanding British evan evangelicalism. I said, okay, I'm taking notes. He said, you know what the favorite term for the British church is? It's grace, he said. Because it's grace because the, the Welsh can write hymns about it. And the English can preach about it. The Irish can fight over it. And the Scots love it because it's free. <laughs> Isn't that great? So we bring along our culture. We bring it along and see, we are this diverse, this tapestry. We are so diverse, but you know what? We bring to the church our background. We bring our stuff. We bring it. It's not good or bad. It's simply, it is. See, I'm, my family says that I'm OCD. I'm not because the OCD is in the wrong order. Should be CDO. Then we're okay. Have you noticed that to preach to you comfortable, I come to the middle? Because somebody decided to put the pulpit on the side. What's up with that? <laughs> My mind, I just imagine that there's a pulpit here and I come here and I feel comfortable. We bring our background, don't we? And that takes part of our mind. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world. Some of us have preached and we have said, oh, do not be conformed by the sins of this world. No, he's talking to the church. He's saying to the church, hey, church, you are saints. You are saved. And sometimes, you know, let me just tell you, every church acquires a form. That's a given. What shape do you acquire? Look, look at this. I can tell you when was this building built because of the shape of the, of, of the chairs. You remember in the, we used to build them this way? In architecture, I was taught form follows function. That's what they told me. Because if I love triangles, it doesn't work for churches. There are certain forms that work. All of us will acquire a form. Let me just tell you, all of us will be shaped by something. All of us. The question is not, are you going to be allowing yourself to be shaped? No, that's not a question. All of us will acquire a shape. Here's the question. Which shape? The Apostle Paul is saying, do not conform. You know what the word conform means? Conform means shared form. In other words, do not be shaped by your context. Do not be shaped by society. If society says, we're going to change our belief according to our behavior, do not. If society says, we're going to, 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 to form our belief according to our politics, do not. If society says, we're going to shape the church according to our culture, do not. Do not conform. Conform means shared form. In other words, do not give Jesus the shape of the world. Because this is gonna, Jesus is going to look awful. He says instead, do not conform. Do not share form. Be not shaped by others. He offers a second alternative. And here's the second sermon. Do not conform, transform. Do not conform, transform. What, the word that is being used here is metamorphosis. Metamorphosis means it's not evolution. You remember when we were in science 
in, in, in elementary school, and they taught us in science about the experiment of the, the, the story of the frog and the story of the butterfly. Look, the butterfly starts like, like a cocoon, an ugly cocoon. Then, then it transforms from an ugly cocoon into a larva. That looks like, like, that, that looks like this, this big worm with a bunch of stuff on its back. From a larva, it grows into a caterpillar. From a caterpillar, then, it, then that ugly stuff in the back starts spreading into beautiful painting. And then it turns into the most beautiful insect there is, a butterfly. From an ugly cocoon to a beautiful butterfly. That's not evolution, my friends. That's the same animal. Do you say amen to that? Okay, if you, if you don't believe that, okay, let's go to a human being. It starts like sperm and, and, and an ovule, and they become an egg, and the egg is one, and the egg is already life. Let me just tell you, it's already life. Amen. It's already life. Amen. It's already beating. It's transforming. And then it turns into an ugly thing called a fetus. That he grows and grows parts and everything and then begin, begins growing. And then he has this, this little, little tribe like a tube somewhere that you can, we can see. It like, and then, while well, it comes out and still ugly. Let's face it. <laughs> yeah, parents would say, oh, isn't he beautiful? I... <laughs> it's worse when they said, oh, it looks like the father. <laughs> yeah. It looks like the father. No, no, no. But then, then it grows, and, and then look, it's us. But we're not there yet. We're going to continue growing until the Apostle Paul says, until we all grow to acquire the form to be like him, to be like Jesus. We have two choices. One is we shape Jesus to the patterns of this world, that's conforming. Or we transform ourselves into the person of Jesus. That's our choice. But we have the choice. The Apostle Paul says, do not conform, transform. That preaches, doesn't it? That's the second sermon. But there is a problem. That sounds good, but how do I do that? I know that I'm cluttered. My tendency as a human is to be conformed. You know, if you look at fashion, pastor's fashion, 40 years ago, they looked silly 40 years ago. Now we look cool. <laughs> 40 years ago, they talked about Brother Phineas. He looked silly, but now we look cool. We are made to conform. So how do we fix the problem? It's a video here. Maybe. The human brain, made of approximately 100 billion neurons, the same number of stars that exist within our galaxy, the human brain monitors and regulates all of the body's actions and reactions. With over five trillion chemical operations occurring every second and signals being transferred at speeds of over 260 miles per hour, our brain is rapidly analyzing and responding to all of the sights, sounds, and smells all around us. Now, because we are all born slaves to sin, our mind has been programmed to behave out of selfish desire. The way we think, dream, reason, and act are limited to the ways of this world. Now consider the facts for a moment. For every behavior we experience, our brain creates a neurological pathway. As behaviors are repeated, 
those pathways become increasingly more stable. Think of it this way. A single behavior maps out a dirt road in your brain, creating a basic pathway for your thoughts to travel. But as you repeat behaviors, your brain builds a highway, allowing for an increased volume and frequency of thoughts to move about, resulting in your day-to-day -day actions. In order to change our behavior, we must reprogram our brain. It requires the deconstruction of existing highways and is a process that takes time. The Bible directs us to take every thought captive and to commit daily to the renewing of our mind through the power of God's Word. And in time, the result is the formation of an entirely new neurological roadmap, leading you to the life you were meant to live. So the answer is brain surgery. Yes, it is. It is brain surgery. We're going to go full circle. You want to, you want to f test and approve the will of God? You must have the mind of God. But what keeps you from having the mind of God is because your mind has been reprogrammed by the context that forces you to conform to everything that clutters your mind. And therefore, we the church are often in a battle. We saints, saved, sanctified people, are finding it difficult to find the will of God, to identify it because we are cluttered even by good stuff. And as a result, we find it difficult to test, not to mention approve the will of God. The Apostle Paul said, do not conform, transform. Oh, yeah, easy for you to say. No, do it through the renewing of your mind. I can testify to you that um, four years ago, three, four years ago, I started, the Lord started in me a process. It was about this time, and they knew that General Assembly was going to be the following year. And, you know, when we are, after we elect delegates to General Assembly, we start what we call hunting season. People start talking about potential candidates and potential whatever, all this stuff that we do, and we quickly confuse the polity of the church with the politics that shouldn't exist in the church. But we mix them because they kind of spell the same. Well, my wife and I, we, we, the, the Lord had released us from Eurasia. We knew that we were done. Spirit told us. It was, it was clear. But we are missionaries. We're committed to the mission of God. I, I told you that to the NMI convention, the titles for us, are, they're just vehicles for us to fulfill God's call of being missionaries. But people started talking to, to me, good, well-intended religious people, started talking to me about stuff. And I have been a man on a mission with a focused target, and my target has been the mission of God. My calling is to, is to work through the church in proclaiming the good news to the poor. That's my calling. And I have this sense of mission. But you know what? The cacophony, the, the well-intended Nazarenes and non-Nazarenes, they started putting junk in my brain. And after six months, I was a mess. A saint, saved, sanctified, believer, but I was a mess because my mind was cluttered by the cacophony of my surroundings. So one day, I was in India. There was no Nazarene church around, so I went to an Anglican church. And you know what? The Lord spoke to me in an Anglican church. He does that. That was amazing. Don't put it on video. Please delete that. I'm a general superintendent of the Church of Nazarene. It was so, you know what? It was so liberating not to be surrounded by 
cacophony makers, my own people. It was liberating, and I went on the silence of this very quiet place. I just went and I surrendered my mind to the Lord. And this was my prayer. Lord, would you please allow your spirit that has taken full control of my life and my heart to please operate my brain, to remove the cysts of the patterns of this world so that I could listen to you, the whisper of your voice. And the Lord did it. And ever since, my prayer has been, Lord, I want to listen to your voice because I want to be 100%, 100% in fit with your will. So I could tell our daughters when they ask the question, how do you know the will of God? Because we are searching the mind of God. And when it is revealed, it's revealed to me, to my wife, to everybody, and it's good, pleasing, and perfect. Anything out of face sounds good, may not be pleasing, and half of the time it's imperfect. I know that lunch for Nazarenes is a sacred thing. <laughs> but this is what we're going to do. The operating table is ready. Perhaps this is time for us to come and ask the Lord once again. He has dealt with our lives. He has saved us from eternity. That's a given, okay? His spirit has sanctified us. But perhaps this noon time, we need to come to him and ask him, Lord, would you please renew my mind so that I want to have the mind of Christ? Do you want to come to the operating table? The surgeon is ready with the scalpels, and it's not me. You know what I have discovered? I was the, as the advisor for the Mid-Atlantic District, and for six months we were trying to develop a new strategy. We had plans and strategies and all of this, and after six months we realized that the church will not move forward. All the saints were willing, but they were hitting a wall. Even people said, that's sin. And I said, no, that's not sin. I know these people. They're saints. They pray. They fast. They give. They are saints. Then why is not happening? And we realized that there was a mindset problem. We were just refusing to let our mind go of the patterns that we had learned. Do you want to see the kingdom of God being built here? You want to see the kingdom of God being real in your congregation, in your life? We, got, we need to start by having that journey. The journey that says, I want you to operate. I want the renewal of my mind. I told the church in Moncton, I'm not a good salesperson. So the word is already for you. The altar is open. The Spirit is here. You do as the Spirit leads you. And just to prove to you that we do not need to be ushered by an instrument. We're not going to have music this time. Because our true worship is ourselves. God, I want, I want the opportunity to discern your will for my life. What a privilege it is that you, the maker of the universe, is willing to reveal your innermost desire for such an imperfect creature such as I. 
And yet you're willing, you're willing, you're graciously willing to reveal your will to me. Lord, forgive me for the times that I have. I have had my ear and my heart more tuned to the context, to society, to people, even to good preachers. Instead of listening to your still, yet firm word. Here I am, Lord. I'm searching for the mind of Christ. Because I know that I know that I know that once the mind of Christ is in me, the will of God will be so perfectly embraced that I won't even need to test it for it will be perfect. By faith, I receive your will, O Father. I receive your will because I want to have your mind that will reveal to me your will. Help me deconstruct the paradigms some of which I have so sacredly embraced, but which keep me from discerning your will. Could you replace those deconstructed, unhealthy paradigms? And could you replace them with the ever-healing and lightning presence of your Holy Spirit? I celebrate your will. I embrace it with thanksgiving. And I proclaim it with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.